0: There is nothing more powerful than the songs that move our bodies, the writing that ignites our minds and the artworks that heighten our perceptions. Not my words, those of Esther Anatolitis, who has just taken up the mantle as the new editor of Marvellous Meehanjin. Esther has been an advocate for the arts and culture in our country, striving to keep them on the political agenda and in addition to her new job at Mianchin, she's just been appointed to the Council of the National Gallery of Australia, is to welcome and multiple congratulations are in order.
1: Oh my, good evening. And let me say my, my words never sounded better than being read by you. I'm quite
0: overwhelmed. Now stop that. You <laughs> you only embarrass me. Now <laughs> we've just heard Jim, Jim Davison talking about the history of Manchin and Overland, and uh, I was surprised to learn that like your predecessor Clem Christensen, you should have had a career more connected with livestock than <laughs> literature. <laughs>
1: yes. Yes, that's right. He was. Um, um, he, he worked with sheep. He, what, what was he? Was he? A wool, he was um, a wool He was assessing. A wool that's classer. right. Yeah. Yes. Yes, and um, I come from a very long tradition, long line of goat herders on my mother's side of the family, and. Um, there was a time of oh, 20, 25, must have been 25 years ago when my grandfather really hoped that I would be the one to <laughs> carry on the family tradition because it was something that Quite, quite astoundingly, they that they, the herd responded to me. I was quite, I was quite good at this work. I, I enjoyed it, um, but we discussed this at an age when I was, I was young. My ideas wanted to fly away. I said <laughs> no, having no idea that Bapu would then sell the herd after nearly two hundred years in the family.
0: Esther, you could always come up to my farm because we've, oh, got, we've got feral goats, or alternatively, <laughs> I'm sure Melbourne University wouldn't mind if you had a few on the lawn now oh, look that's right <laughs> i imagine you you agree wholeheartedly with jim that journals like me engine still have a vital role to play but do you worry about uh, being a primarily print medium in this uh, damnably digital world.
1: <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? I, I think I think as we, a, a, as the world becomes more and more digital, we love and embrace the printed word even more, just as we love and embrace the handmade um, work that we can see and touch. Of course, Mianjin is also digital as well, but I think... Um, There is something deeply special about uh, a journal, a magazine that comes out once a quarter that that you embrace, that you hold in that intimate readerly posture that is most comfortable for you and also that you collect, that you go and dip into over the years. And there's that particular Australian cultural moment. I really can't see that vanishing away.
0: (laughs) Tell me about the family background. I guess they migrated to Australia after the Civil War?
1: Yes, it was... um, My parents migrated in 64, having grown up with World War II, the Greek Civil War, the Great Famine all of those things that just absolutely disrupt and and debilitate and and hurt your homeland And, and home doesn't feel like home. And like many people, they came to Australia for a better life. But I think they hadn't quite imagined that a better life would be a different life and not you know, the sort of the same life but better. So they're always hearkening back to home. And in 1980, we all moved back to Greece, what what was supposed to be forever, and then we came back again, and then my parents have moved back to Greece permanently from 2010.
0: You write that uh, your parents, having experienced the trauma of all the the aforementioned horrors, hadn't really processed it.
1: Yeah, and I just think it's a it's a culture about getting together and, and rejoicing and sharing pain, but sometimes it's also, at that particular time, a culture of just, you know, come on, let's be positive, let's just get on with it. And so there hadn't been those, I guess, the way that we would think now about those formal approaches and counselling and, and, and so on. But it's interesting, now that they've been back for quite a while, while when I visit, and I was just there a few weeks ago, it was quite wonderful. Um, now being reimmersed in home, but a different home, they are talking about those times in different ways. The way that place brings out, you know, that that memory for you.
0: I think it's time for you to tell us about your brain condition, your endless conflict with the fluorescent tube. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, Philip, it's so boring. Yes, I have. Um, I have a brain condition that is um, similar to epilepsy, but not as extreme. And actually, its um, neurologists tell me it's it's on the migraine spectrum. There's a spectrum of, of migraine conditions. There are a range of things that will trigger small seizures and long migraines, and uh, long tube fluorose is one of them. And it was very difficult to understand this over the years because. You know, we grew up in conditions where they're just everywhere. And so I've had to, for many years, check ahead about every single meeting, make myself rather unpopular by saying, no, we need to turn off the lights or change the lights if I'm joining an organisation. But it just makes me so wary of, um, I guess, those kinds of um, ambient things that we don't often consider. Um, I think we're getting a lot better at considering what disability means and how different things can be debilitating for people and attitudes are changing but um, there's there are so many less visible disabilities that affect a great many people.
0: Moving to the arts when you were a kid uh, Keating was still dreaming up a grand cultural vision picking it up where Gofford had left it I guess but at the time art wasn't a huge part of public life so how and where did your love of the arts begin?
1: Oh, it's it's always hard to kind of pinpoint. I was always a very curious child, always drawing and painting and experimenting. I was that nuisance child that um, the teachers always needed to find more things for me to do. And as a kid, I was um, staging plays and writing them and costuming them and and staging and and, and auditioning them. I was drawing um, classroom-sized environments for us all to keep adding to I was always writing and always reading. And it just seemed, I guess, you know, reflecting back on my parents and um, the difficulties, the traumas with which they were raised, that translated into quite an overprotective upbringing for my sister and I. And so my mind was always... Let me
0: clarify this. Did your parents encourage you or were they concerned
1: They were definitely concerned. I think coming from a place where they'd had the opportunity for just a few years of of schooling they really hoped that my sister and I would take up one of those professions that they had a sense of, it, that they sort of understood that we could be, you know, doctors or lawyers. My sister uh, studied microbiology. I did study law for a while, but um, I had this real sense of um, my ideas wanted to fly away. I wanted to understand broader perspectives and experiences. Um, And I guess any time I was... um, reading or, you know, searching in the library. I still have a crystal clear memory of the first time I saw an art gallery, Philip, and I didn't know what it was. I was at a bus stop and uh, I would I would be there regularly on the way to school and uh, if it was rainy I'd sort of squeeze into the, the, the covered doorway and press my nose into the window and all I could see was a fairly clear vacant space and a beautifully polished floor and I would notice there were things on the walls that could change every now and again but I had no idea what this space was for and what it I, did. I remember
0: that feeling when paintings mm. were just weird, enigmatic,
1: silences. Yes. Oh, what a beautiful way of putting it. And the way that it, yes, it creates that enigmatic silence in our minds. It it, it reanimates and reconfigures what, what we're thinking. And by the same token, when we encounter something that we're reading, whether it's a poem which can absolutely arrest us or a critical perspective that we just hadn't considered, um, time slows down and we reimagine what's possible. <laughs>
0: Now, let's have a quantum leap to the current situation where you're expressing concerns about the path some of our cultural institutions have been taking. What are the trends that trouble you?
1: Oh, I think um, we have got in Australia some really, really um, adventurous, confident, ambitious artists and and arts organisations. We have a growing number of artists and organisations and audiences who are clamouring to see great work. But when it comes to policy and I guess the funding that can support what makes it possible for audiences across Australia, especially regionally, to enjoy the arts, we have not seen policy and public investment at all keep a pace with the growth of the arts. But Apart from those economic terms about how artists live and work, we're also not seeing policy that that says to Australian artists, we want you to be courageous and ambitious. Please astound us with what we couldn't possibly have imagined. And so it has been really great in the last months to see uh, the new government actively welcome people's contributions to a national cultural policy.
0: And we should also point out that artist average incomes are pretty well to say modest would be a wild exaggeration. They're, oh, it's they're, a, they're yeah. frightful, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I think it's a it's a few light years below modest. Um, artist average incomes have not changed since the 1980s when research was was first being done. It is below the poverty line. Authors earn, uh, authors, writers earn on average just from their writing uh, in the low ten thousands, $10, dollars dollars 11000 which of course means that writers are doing a, a you know, multitude of, of other things to sustain a career. And for some people, that's great. You want to be doing multiple things but for others, it is no way to, to build a career.
0: Paul Keating used to talk about grasping the, the levers of power. Well, you've now got... A lever in each hand with
1: <laughs> with
0: me and the NGA.
1: How do you plan to use your leverage? Oh. Power comes from the most creative people in our community Uh, those levers are about making decisions and having conversations especially at a place like the National Gallery where the Governing Council is there to make good decisions and and you know be rigorous and be strategic and so on whereas at Mianjin I will have the great um, joy and honour and privilege of getting to commission great work as well as inviting submissions and then looking at how best to invite that, how best to, in, to to welcome critical, creative voices, but also diverse voices, voices in other languages, voices who writers who love language, who are experimenters, um, who want to really unsettle the ways that we think and discuss.
0: I must say that, uh, despite me, having an indigenous name and despite my lifetime loyalty to Overland, neither journal did much to foster First Nations voices. You will be addressing that?
1: Oh, I will, and I think that um, I've been—I've really enjoyed over the years reading, you know, quite a range of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists in in the journal. I've got a few ideas about really strongly centering, um, and I'm going to be developing those ideas in in discussions um, with a range of First Nations writers, but in particular writers from actual Meangin, the place we now know as as Brisbane. I think it was something that um, that Clem Christison wanted to commit to, to, to devote to. And I guess at, at different times, there are there are different um, ways and understandings and, and relationships. Um, I think as we go into treaty here in Victoria and towards the voice to parliament, um, I think in, in a lot of circles, and not just in the wonderful world of little magazines and literary journals, um, I think we're going to be hearing those voices so much more strongly um, as, as well, we should be.
0: Mianjin, of course, was founded in wartime, and I understand you see echoes of Clem's uh, first issue sentiment in the present Australian artist's need of support.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think when we reflect on the pandemic and the way that this was, and we think about um, people who haven't been fortunate enough to not live through wars and such um, um, horrible times, this period where of extended lockdowns uh, and concerns for our health has been the most extreme cultural disruption to our lives that most people will ever have experienced. And so reflecting on Clem's first editorial about, you know, this, this, this war, is happening. Let's, let's not imagine that our cultural life can just be put on hold and then somehow magically come back to life again at the end. we'll we'll know this time of continued um, political instability, my God, look at what's happening in Europe, in Asia, uh, Russia's invasion, uh, China's moves towards Taiwan and who knows where else, um, the political instability that's become fast in the UK, the concerns in the US, the ways in which um, divisions between people have been exploited, the ways in which the printed word, the online word has become lie so often. This is absolutely a time when we need to be very focused on making sure that Australia's cultural life is is thriving. Now, as I
0: said at the outset, you've been appointed to the Council of the National Gallery by Arts Minister Tony Burke. So you clearly have the Minister's ear Are you going to be whispering into it as he forms the (laughs) national cultural policy?
1: I'll be whispering, I'll be shouting, I'll be writing. I think we all will and we all must. And Minister Burke welcomes this. Um, you know, I, I, I hope it's, uh, I'm, I'm delighted that it's, uh, what's the word? Is it is it foolish or courageous or, or brilliantly ambitious that he's going around raising the bar of expectation a great deal on what a cultural policy should be? He's talking not just about the arts. He's talking about a cultural policy that plugs into health and education. Education, uh, foreign relations, you know, the ways in which artists are workers and their work and their rights are supported. So I think for all of us, decide whether you prefer to be a whisperer, a writer, or a shouter. Let's do this.
0: When I was fortunate to be on the Australia Council set up by or revived by by Goff, and there was there was just oodles of money. We could throw it around with gay abandon. But that also had its echo in the states. We also need state governments to get interested.
1: We really do, and there are um, there are differing approaches there. Um, I noted recently, Minister Shane, the ACT um, Arts Minister, has put out this extraordinary statement of ambition for Canberra to be the arts capital of Australia. We've seen extraordinary capital investment in cultural infrastructure in New South Wales, in Victoria, WA, South Australia. A lot of money going into what are going to be some extraordinary art spaces, galleries, museums, but of course that just risks growing the gap between All that great money being poured into uh, superbly designed bricks and mortar and the lack of public investment in artists, in writers. We need to think about investing in artists without necessarily an outcome, a project in mind. We need to say to artists, we want you to be ambitious and courageous. You, You tell us, where is the art form going? Where is writing going? Where is literature going? Where is visual arts installation experimentation going?
0: show me the money. (laughs) The sticking point will be funding and uh, I note that someone, one of the nine newspapers, described uh, Tony's plan as a consult now, pay later approach. Do you expect to see the tap turned on in the budget?
1: Well, I don't think anyone's expecting too many taps in the next budget. I think uh, I think eventually it, it is going to be essential. Um, we've got some extraordinary challenges, but you know we also look at um, what it takes to you know re-strengthen and reinvigorate a nation going through a pandemic and into what some arts colleagues of mine call this era of compound crisis: floods, fires, the the, the climate crisis. We need. Um, to be moved and inspired by artists. But we also need to be welcoming the most creative voices into the sciences, into economic thinking, into public transport, into all the systems that sustain us.
0: Before I let you go, let's go global. And tell me about that uh, World Conference that was recently held in Mexico.
1: Yes, fantastic to see UNESCO looking at what is needed for arts and culture into the future. So Mondia Cult was in September. This was, um, I think, 140, 135 member states from all across the world who, for the very first time, came to affirm unanimously that culture is a global public good. It's not a nice-to-have. It's not something that we tack on as a portfolio uh, for the way that governments think and work, but it's actually a public good that needs to be central in policy and funding.
0: You know, I'd normally want you to be sitting in the studio with me.
1: Mm. On this occasion,
0: I'm glad you're not, because as I look up, do you know what I see above me?
1: What do you see?
0: Oodles of fluoro tubes.
1: <laughs> so uh, It's you know, very cosy here yeah, in Melbourne. Well, God, God has...
0: <laughs> looking after us on this occasion, uh. as indeed she should. Esther, what a privilege to talk to you. Oh, Esther
1: likewise.
0: Esther Anatolitas, the new editor of Mianjin, and she's also just been appointed to the National Gallery of Australia Council to add to her growing collection of hats. G'day, potties. If you can't get enough of Canberra politics and you're missing Fran Kelly, head to the Party Room, the podcast where Fran and RN Bricky presenter Patricia Cavallis unpick the week in politics. You'll find it on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your
1: podcasts.